we are going to continue our study in the book of Galatians. Actually, you know, uh, we've had a tradition for years in the summer months. Uh, we take a bit of a break from uh, sermons. We've got to extend to drashas. So this will be the last message I'm going to give on Galatians until the fall. But the point of this message is to uh, uh, kind of bring things together a little bit, take a look at the macro again of the book of Galatians, the big picture. You know, it's important for us to understand the big picture. Again, in, uh, in Christian theology, the book of Galatians is, of course, in the New Covenant, New Testament text, and uh, probably the first book written somewhere around 48 to 50 B, uh, CE. Uh, it's either this or James, one of the two. But uh, the book is, is critical. Almost all Christian understanding of the New Testament actually is based on, on your perspective of the book of Galatians. All right? So uh, this morning as we look at the text, we have to look at it theologically. In other words, we're going to look at it from a, from a very high vantage point to understand exactly what the book is going to teach us in terms of the micro aspects of the text. Now, uh, the typical understanding is the book of Galatians is all about grace versus law. To me, it's all about how people come into right relationship with God, and that is by faith alone. Faith alone. All right? We're going to talk about, that. really this topic is the topic we're going to talk about from the book of Galatians. Overview of the book. Shaul wrote this book again somewhere around 48 to 50 C.E., uh, because word had come to him that this community of people that had come to faith in Yeshua, both from the synagogue, so Jewish people as well as Gentiles, pagans, uh, God-fearers, but not Jews, had come to believe in Yeshua and some theological issues had come up. They had come to buy into this understanding that you come into right relationship with God by becoming Jewish. You have to really become Jewish in order to really come into right relationship with God. You have to come under the covenant at Sinai in order to really be in right relationship with God. And so Paul deals with this in the book. And so we, you've been coming along. You can listen to the series on, on the website. There's the initial introduction, which is all nice, and then a very strong rebuke, followed by a defense. Paul, Shaul, basically takes a moment to say, guys, this is who I am. This is my authority. This is my position, just to remind them who he is. They should already understand that, but... Sometimes you need a reminder. And then the main thought, the premise of the whole book, verses 15 through 21, all people come into a right relationship with God by faith alone. That is the proposition. That is the position of the book. Everything else now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, through the end of verse, uh, uh, really all the way to the end of chapter 4, it's all argument. He is arguing his position. That's it. Now, at the same time, I want to talk about a little thing called peer pressure. Peer pressure can be very good. We're not going to do the video quite yet. You can bring it up. Um, peer pressure, though, uh, comes in different forms. Uh, many of you don't know this. Some of you do. Uh, anybody ever heard of a guy named Michael Dell? Michael Dell? Michael Dell and I uh, are about the same age. Michael Dell is the founder of Dell Computers, all right, down in Austin, Texas. And he started building computers and selling them out of his dorm room. Uh, I did along the same lines in about 1986, 87, 88, out of Moody Bible Institute, along with a bunch of other crazy guys. And we were all selling the PC because the PC, of course, with its uh, operating system, 
uh, not Windows, it was uh, just a, an OS uh, operating system, uh, was the future. And uh, so everybody was uh, selling these 88 or uh, odd 86 uh, units and uh, around the neighborhood. I'm very proud to say that at one point I introduced the Toshiba laptop, the small little Toshiba, no disk drive, just two flip, floppy disk laptop uh, into Chicago's marketplace. Nobody bought it because no one knew what to do with it, but it was interesting nonetheless. And then there was a, a small problem. Apple came on the scene. And Apple said, why are you all marching down the Microsoft path? You need to think outside that box. And so we have a video to remind us of groupthink. Please show the video. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. For the first time in all history, a garden of pure ideology, where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 all right now there's an awful lot to know about the background of that so I'm not going to go into it but the bottom line is is that well group think yeah a lot of people you know really were focused on one particular approach to solving all the problems uh, Steve Jobs along with the guys Steve Wozniak and the guys at Apple said no we got a different approach and uh, that basically says, think for yourself. Don't fall into groupthink. You know, it is very important for us to think for ourselves. If you just listen to what people say and you don't think for yourself, you're going to get in trouble, okay? Even in religion, all right? When I preach the text, when I teach the text, when anyone teaches the text, you should study it for yourself. At the same time, we tend to go along with the crowd. you know that? Most of us tend to do what's easy. What's easy is to go with the crowd, go with the flow. Anybody like to purposefully walk on the wrong side of the sidewalk on Michigan Avenue on a busy day? It's very difficult. It's annoying. My wife likes to do it because she likes to be different. But it's, it's problematic for everybody. There are reasons to go with the flow sometimes, but naturally, do you know what? Naturally, we tend to go with the flow. There was an ash project study in the 70s, and this video is going to talk about that. The ash experiment is one of psychology's oldest and most popular pieces of research. A volunteer is told that he's taking part in a visual perception test. What he doesn't know is that the other participants are actors, and he's the only person taking part in the real test, which is actually about group conformity. Please begin. The experiment you will be taking part in today involves the perception of line length. Your task will be simply to look at the line here on the left and indicate which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. So, for example... If you the actors right have been told to match the wrong lines. The volunteer will be monitored, 
to see if he gives the correct answer or if he goes along with the opinion of the group and gives the wrong answer. In the first test, the correct answer is two. Uh, one. 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 Two. One. Once again, the correct answer is two. Three. 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 The ash experiment has been repeated many times, and the results have been uh, supported again and again. We will conform to the group. Again, we're very social creatures. We're very much aware of what the people around us think. Uh, we want to be liked. We don't want to be seen to rock the boat. So we will go along with the group. Even if we don't believe what people are saying, we'll still go along. One. 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 Group dynamics is one of the most powerful forces in human psychology. Uh, one. One. All right. Isn't that interesting? Now, in one sense, there are times when going along with the crowd, you know, makes sense. You know, but when it comes to issues of faith, that's a problem. You know, group think and going along with the crowd, that doesn't get us into a right relationship with God, does it? Our own willful decision to come into right relationship with God because we recognize who God is and what God expects of us, that's what's critical. But... The reason I bring this up is really related to the issue of the scriptures themselves. Sometimes what happens to us as believers is we begin to understand the scriptures based on what is simply the popular view. That's not always the best approach, okay? Uh, it's, it's not always the, the best approach. You know, there are classic perspectives of the biblical text that go back 2,000 years or earlier, both within the Jewish community and in the uh, Christian community, views which are theologically critical. All right? In the Jewish community, there came to be a very early on an understanding, and I think a right obvious understanding, that there is only one God. We say Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, but that is a statement of affirmation that there is only one God and there is no other. You... People in the past have surmised that there are lower gods or lesser gods. And God is God, but there's a pantheon. There's all kinds of crazy ideas that have been espoused, even within the Jewish community, going back into ancient Jewish history. The Jewish community said no to all of that and said no. A proper understanding of the biblical text is that there is only one God, the God of Israel, period. In the New Testament, with the coming of Messiah Yeshua, there's a lot of different people that came up with different ideas about, about his nature. Who is Yeshua? You know, some of the early views uh, varied. Some said that Yeshua was kind of like a demigod. Some said that he was just a man, he was not God. But what's interesting is the very earliest understandings of who Yeshua is was that Yeshua is God himself. Somewhat in understanding, but different than what we see in the Hebrew scriptures about what we, in Hebrew we call the Malach Adonai, the angel of the Lord, this physical manifestation of God himself. And so there was a lot of discussion from about the, uh, the late 
you know, the late first century all the way up until the beginning of the third century in regards to the nature of Yeshua. Who is he? And the understanding that came to be accepted, and I think the biblical understanding, which is absolutely correct, is that Yeshua is indeed God. But that Yeshua is indeed man. <laughs> All right? Seems like a bit of a paradox. Well, yes. But to do anything else, just the scriptures don't work. So we understand that Yeshua is indeed God himself. And as uh, other people have articulated in terms of the triune understanding of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which the scriptures again teach in different ways, is this, this is the way to understand him. All right? And, uh, and it's been the accepted understanding for ever since, and I think really ever since the first century, because that's what the New Covenant texts detail. One thing that, uh, that is taught pretty universally within Christianity is that the Mosaic Covenant was terminated. The Mosaic Covenant was done away with. That particular view comes out of the uh, second, really the mid to late second uh, century up until really get pretty much it's codified by the third century, fourth century. This is an understanding that with the Messiah, when the Messiah came, that God's uh, covenant with the Jewish people ended, okay? And that... uh, in that it, there's no covenant with the Jewish people anymore. Now, there's a grayscale of this within the Christian community. If you are Reformed or classical covenantal, which is basically think Catholics and Orthodox, uh, their perspective on this would be that they are now Israel. The Christian church is Israel today. If you're dispensational in your understanding, and, and a lot of uh, evangelicals are dispensational, they would say the law is done away with, but that God still has some special role for Israel. The problem is all these views are based off of an anti-Jewish bias, an anti-Jewish bias that develops post-destruction of the Second Temple, and you can trace it. Actually, you can, you, it's probably post-Second post, uh, uh, the, the, the second Revolt, so around 135, when the, uh, many of the Jews had become believers in Jesus, probably many of them had died in the, in the revolts and uh, otherwise were scattered. We know that up until the revolt, uh, second revolt of 132, that all the bishops operating out of Jerusalem were Jews. And up until the beginning of the first century, they were all relatives of Yeshua. They were all uh, either related to, uh, they were James, of course, up until about 62 when he was killed, and then it was Yeshua's cousins. Uh, through Judah, uh, that or nieces uh, or nephews, I'm sorry, through Judah, uh, and uh, so anyway, it's a little complicated. I'm not going to go into it, but the bottom line is, is that after 135 and the destruction, the leadership, uh, the Jewish leadership ended uh, over the believing community, and it became Gentile, and some from that time up really until in our day, the bias that has occurred, the bias. From within the church, the Christian church has been anti-Jewish, all right? And that's the theology I want to speak to this morning. And I'm going to read a couple of statements, and we're going to go through this PowerPoint. First statement do I want to read, uh, and then we'll go into the points. Christian, the- I'm just recapping what I just said. Christian theology developed an anti-Jewish bias beginning in the early 2nd century that impacted the way Christians interpret the Scriptures. This view effectively read out of the Bible including the Hebrew Scriptures, the role and responsibility of Israel, the Jewish people, and instead replace them with the Christian church. 
The impact for Jewish believers was that in order to become a follower of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, they had to break off all connection with their identity as Jews. The message of Messiah Yeshua is that all people can come into a right relationship with God by faith alone without having to become Jews. This is the mystery that's spoken of in the New Testament. From our perspective, we're like, huh? In their, from their perspective, this was a massive sea change in understanding. By the 4th century, Christian theology taught that Jews, in effect, had to become Gentiles in order to truly come into a right relationship with the Christian God. This incorrect theological understanding continues down to our day and is found in almost all Christian churches and theologies. Thankfully, in our day, some Christian theologians are beginning to see the discontinuity of this view, such as Joel Willits down at North Park, and are willing to rethink this anti-Jewish bias through which they interpret the Scriptures. I want to be very clear. This doesn't mean that Christians are all anti-Semites. Absolutely not but that there is an anti-Jewish bias that has existed within Christian theology. And it comes directly as a result of the, of the Jewish revolts and a decision to distance itself from the Jewish roots of its own faith, starting in the middle of the second century. But at the same time, I want to reiterate, all who by faith believe in Abraham's seed are heirs according to God's promise. All people come into right relationship with God by faith alone. That's Paul's position. That's the premise. Yet, chapter 3 especially, and we'll look at chapter 4 in the fall, this chapter is used as a club to beat Jews into giving up their identity, and it consists with a complete misunderstanding of the text, a biased interpretation of the, te- of the text. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. And so we're going to begin in verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15. And I just want to point out that chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Galatians are highly midrashic. Highly midrashic. You say, what is midrash? It's a Jewish form of allegory. It's a way of teaching. Drash has to do with explanation and, and understanding. All right, so Paul, Shaul, is using Midrash. And he's using Midrash common within the Jewish community. All right, and I'll try to explain this, but we're going to do it without a lot of depth. I just want to point out the concepts. First of all, God's promise to Abraham a seed. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. It says in the text, Brothers and sisters, I speak in human terms. Even with a man's covenant, once it has been confirmed, no one cancels it or adds to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It doesn't say and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is the Messiah. Here begins in verses 15 and 16. And here in this text, what Shaul is really doing is he is reminding the people about the fact that God brought Abraham into relationship with himself and he promised Abraham that through him and his seed that the world would be blessed, that the nations, the people of the world, it's not talking about the rock we're all sitting on. Although, you know, the center of this thing is like molten lava. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) But this planet on which we exist, there are people. And God desires to bring people into right relationship with him. It's all about that. And so God said that through Abraham and his seed, he was going to bless the world. Now, it's fascinating. The word seed here 
both in English, Hebrew, Greek. It's all singular, okay? It's really, it's a singular word. Seed can be one or it can be many. Obviously in the text, the text is stating that through Abraham's descendants, but Shaul, and the rabbis talk about this, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but the point I want to get across here is that, is that the promise to Abraham is that he would have a seed. Shaul is saying that that seed includes the Messiah. And that ultimately what it's all about is all people are going to be able to come into right relationship with God, with God by faith, just like Abraham. Now, let's continue to read verse 17. What I am saying is this. Torah, which came 430 years later, does not cancel the covenant previously confirmed by God so as to make the promise ineffective. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham by means of a promise. What we're talking about here is that now he's dealing with this Midrashic issue. All right? He is now pointing out that this promise that God made to Abraham that through his seed he would provide a blessing of salvation for all the world, he now says that just because the Torah comes along 430 years later, it doesn't mean that that supersedes the first. This is important. First of all, you should be fascinated to know the 430 years he comes up with is actually right out of Midrashic, right out of Jewish thought in his day. Because the numbers are not clear. It's like, how do you trace this? Where the people, you know, there's all kinds of numbers that don't go into it. But, but Paul is leaning on Jewish thought to explain to these people, in essence, that you guys are thinking you need to rely on the Torah and come into right relationship with God through the Mosaic Covenant because it comes after the Abrahamic Covenant. But you completely misunderstand the purpose of the, of the Mosaic Covenant and its role and its, its efficacy, it's what's it for. Instead, he points out and he says that the promise of Abraham is the promise that they're supposed to rely on coming into right relationship with God by faith alone. So, to sum it up, Shaul is simply pointing out in his writing that God's promises to Abraham of a seed would actually be the Messiah, Yeshua, who would provide salvation for all who would believe on his sacrificial death. The Mosaic Covenant, which was given 430 years after God's original promise to Abraham to making a blessing, whether you look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, or a few years later, Genesis chapter 15, where it says Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. People aren't sure exactly how best to date it. The rabbis weren't completely clear, but it's either Genesis 12 or Genesis 15. That's how they come up with 430 years. Paul agrees with them. So if you're wondering why I agree with Paul or the rabbis, it's because Paul agrees with the rabbis, all right? So going on here, this Mosaic Covenant, which was given 430 years after God's original promise to Abraham to make him a blessing, did not take the place of this earlier promise. In other words, the blessing of salvation, which is inheritance, that's Inheritance here means this blessing, salvation, made by God through Abraham to all nations, not just the Jews, would not be based on the Torah, but on God's covenantal promise to Abraham to make him a blessing to the nations. 
This is a huge argument. It's a great argument that he's making. Because what's sad is, is some of the Christian commentators understand this, and some of them don't. Depends how much their bias is when it comes to the Jewish people. Now, let's take a look at the next section, though. God's promise versus God's Torah, because all the way along here, he's building this argument piece by piece. So take a look at verse 19. It says, then why the Torah? Good question. If you remember, he actually talks about this in Romans chapters 3 too. Then why the Torah? It was added because of wrongdoings until the seed would come, to whom the promise had been made. It was arranged through angels by the hand of an intermediary. Now an intermediary is not for one party alone, but God is one. Then is the Torah against the promises of God, may it never be. For if a law had been given that could, not, that could impart life, certainly righteousness would have been based on law. But the scripture has, looked, has locked up the world, whole world under sin so that the promise based on trust in Messiah Yeshua might be given to those who trust. Wow, he's saying, it's a long section. But if you really want to sum this whole thing up, a lot of people will look at this first part, then why the Torah is added because of sin. The Torah is equated with being sin, you know, but then they stop because unfortunately Paul goes on and talks about, well, listen, if you could get saved by good deeds, the Torah is the document to do it. He speaks very highly of it, probably because he's read Psalm 119, all right? It's very interesting. If you go back to the book of Romans chapter 3, he speaks very highly again of it and then goes right into the issues of sin. What is the point of the Torah? The Torah was added, and I'm going to put in here brackets, serve to make wrongdoing a legal offense, to let us know what sin is. The Greek words where it says it was added because of wrongdoing means actually, and I got this out of a good Christian commentator or two, they said, well, the, the Greek actually means make wrongdoing a legal offense. What's the point? How many of you speed? You are an honest man. Yeah, okay, good. When you speed, how do you know you speed? Because somebody posted a sign that says you speed. The speed limit is this, and you do this. Don't you love that? You go down the road, and they got those electronic ones now that tell you when you're breaking the law because you're going 68 and a 55. <laughs> What's the point of that? To make you aware. The Torah makes us aware of our offense. That's the purpose of it. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about. There's nothing wrong with it. It's actually very good. It's a gift from God to let us know when we're stepping out. All right? The Torah is also, has nothing to do with being against God's promise, meaning the promise to Abraham of salvation for all who will believe from the nations by faith, but in reality confronts us with our sinful reality so that we might turn to God's promise by faith like Abraham. What's amazing is the Torah is this, this incredible moral, ethical document in and of itself. Forget about the covenant aspects that God has made with us as Jews specifically so that we can be identified as his people. The bottom line is, is that the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are amazing. It's an amazing moral, ethical document to guide life. Do you like to do business with a liar? The answer is no. I was talking with Todd. We were talking about legal issues today, or the other day. I mean, it's like... You, Doing business today, not only do you have to prove that what you do is right, you have to probably disprove the other people that might be trying to get in the way. You know, we are in, in a society today where the question is, what is truth? 
It's relevant now just like it was when Pilate said those words. But if people would live by the moral, ethical teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures and the Torah, they would do well. We would all do well. But what's the verses? It's really to point out that too often people confuse the purpose and the role. All people come into right relationship with God because of the promise that God made to Abraham. That God would save by faith all who would believe in him. All who would believe in him. And that it's simply, in our understanding now, with the coming of our Messiah, belief on Yeshua's atonement. Yeshua came and he died. He shed blood, making the payment for sin. And if people will simply believe on this truth, their sins will be forgiven and they will be in a right relationship with God. How hard is that? It's extremely difficult because people don't want to do what comes with it, which is recognize who God is and want to live their lives His way. Okay? Now, the fourth point, begin in, in verse uh, 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were being guarded under Torah, bound together with the com- uh, until the coming faith would be revealed. Therefore, the Torah became our guardian to lead us to Messiah so that we might be made right based on trusting. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons of God through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. For all who, are, who were immersed in Messiah Yeshua have clothed themselves with Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. All right. So then many people will point out this guardian. All right. And I have guardian versus spirit. What's the guardian? Many people in Christian theology, the guardian slash tutor, this is this, the, the, the law is this is thing that was necessary for a time until the Messiah came and no longer has a purpose. All right? Well, let's understand exactly what the guardian is. First of all, the, the guardian is not a teacher. In ancient uh, Greek society, uh, basically he was like, uh, what do they call him when uh, European girls come over to America and, and babysit long term? Au pair. They're like au pairs. <laughs> I've had no personal experience with them, but I've met a few. All right. Uh, so it's like, let's say Judith wanted to go to Switzerland, and her job was to be like a nanny. Oh, Austria. Sound of music. We can all appreciate that. So she comes in, and her job is to provide you know, certain things for these kids. She's to play a specific function. It's a custodial disciplinary function. thinking about sound of music for a moment. But think about it. Anybody, you've all seen the movie, right? The job of, of the uh, custodian, the au pair, the, the woman in, in uh, sound of music is to be a disciplinarian, to provide structure, to help them kind of as they go through their day with the hope that as they're getting older, you know, but it's generally to move them in a particular direction so the admiral can do what he needs to do, all right? This is what the Torah is according to this text. The Torah is a custodian, a guardian, to provide custodial disciplinary functions. The Torah served to guide those who followed it toward the promised seed, Messiah Yeshua, 
And uh, the guardian provided direction, expectation, and boundaries. So just as the Torah provided for us and for all those who would follow it, direction, expectation, and a boundary for how they were to live. Without the Torah, we wouldn't know how to live for God. This is critical, all right? This is critical because we need to understand what this word means and how it's relevant for us as we understand the biblical text. The guardian is important to provide primarily discipline and direction. But as the child would mature and grow, they would need less and less instruction and discipline from the guardian, all right? Now, the Messiah has come, and the disciplinary function of the guardian is no more. The Torah does not discipline us anymore. How can I say that, you might say? Why is it that Paul so clearly says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those in Messiah Yeshua? The condemnation of the law, the discipline of the Torah has been done away with. But it does not mean that, the, that the, 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 the Torah itself, the Mosaic Covenant itself, does not still provide direction. We'll talk about that in a moment. We function under God's law. All of Scripture is God's law and instruction. But today, the discipline comes through the Spirit. The Spirit of God is our guardian today. When you take a look at chapter 3, verse 1, you'll notice that Paul in his rebuke is challenged them in regards to the Ruach. And then we're going to get to it next year or next fall, but in chapter 4 he goes back to the Ruach and he ends with the Ruach. Why? Because what is it that should be disciplining you? The spirit that God, that God sent after Yeshua's resurrection. The spirit of God to lead us into all truth, to convict us of sin, to teach us. He mentions in, uh, in verse 27, he says, For you are all sons of God through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. For, you, for all of you who were immersed in Messiah have, been, have clothed yourself with Messiah. The immersion there is the immersion of the Spirit. You see it? So instead of the guardian being the Torah, the Mosaic Covenant, and Messiah coming, it's done away with. We don't longer need it. What is it that we don't need? We don't... There's no, that disciplinary aspect of it has been done away, all right? Because it's been replaced by the Spirit of God who now is within us, teaching us and leading us. And one other piece of this, and this goes back down to chapter, I mean, to verse 28 where he says right afterwards, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Messiah. The Spirit has transformed us. In the transformation of the Messiah, before God, we all stand equally as His spiritual children. We are heirs, spiritual heirs. We have inherited the promise of Abraham that is salvation by faith alone. That's what he's talking about in chapter 3. So as I've said in multiple times, that this book is not an anti-Mosaic covenant book. That would make no sense. Because otherwise, Paul's just a really big hypocrite in the book of Acts. And I don't think he's a hypocrite. Also, what's nice about this, and I'll rely on friends like Joel Willits, who's a PhD and knows his stuff, is that it makes the scripture make a lot more sense. 
Instead of the old being old and done away with, the new is just this addition that's been added, making us, helping us understand the mystery of the fact that when the Messiah came, he brought all people to himself, and they didn't have to become Jews to grow close to God. They could be who God made them to be. Now, at the same time, and I would encourage you, if you've got it, to take a look at your announcement sheet, <clears throat> because I'm going to pronounce a piece of Devar Emmett theology, because I've decided that, uh, that this is not clear enough, and I want to make sure this is crystal clear to everybody. It is the belief, this is a theological statement, a Devar Emmett Messianic Synagogue, that God gave the practices of the Torah for moral instruction, and as a body of cultural national practices, which would point Israel forward to the Messiah's work of providing complete righteousness for all people who would believe on Yeshua's atoning sacrifice. Torah observance is not, nor ever was, a means to provide justification, which is by faith alone. Even after Messiah Yeshua's death and resurrection, the Torah continues to serve its dual purpose as a valuable reflection of God's righteous standard for all people and as a means of preserving the distinct nation of Israel. Messiah Yeshua's salvific work, that means his death and his resurrection, Messiah Yeshua's salvific work is different in purpose from the unique purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, Messiah's death has in no way brought about the termination of the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, within the universal body of Messiah, Jewish followers of Messiah, like all Jewish people, because remember, we are part of Am Echad, one people, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel. All Jewish followers of Messiah, like all the rest of the Jewish people, are still responsible to maintain their distinctive biblical and cultural identity through observing, even if imperfectly, God's unique covenant with Israel as instructed within the Hebrew Scriptures. The Torah is not done away with. We are obligated to keep the Torah. But we keep it like everybody else has throughout the years, imperfectly. But thank God there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Just like when I speak at the Lakeside Japanese Church tomorrow morning, they don't keep perfectly anything that they do. And by grace, through faith, they follow the Lord their God as Japanese Christians. For us as Jews, God has asked us to be distinct. And that means we are to observe specific requirements, things that he's asked us to do. Thank God that I'm a man, that I don't have to do the things that God has asked women to do. And women are like, well, thank God I'm not a man because I don't have to do what those guys do. Isn't it interesting? God likes distinction, and God has established roles. But all of us come into right relationship with God by faith alone. But again, I'm making it very clear. This synagogue's theological position is not that the Torah is done away with. A contraire. We are obligated as Jews to keep the Torah, recognizing we cannot keep it perfectly. But we can't keep perfectly all the Scripture, can we? Especially those of you who sped to get here. God has given us good instruction. Let us study it. Let us know it. Let us be the light and the testimony God wants us to be. We are the physical seed of Abraham. Those of us who are Jewish in this room, we are Abraham's physical heirs. Our purpose to be a blessing to the nations. If we all become goyim and we act like Gentiles, how do we live that out? We don't. 
Living like that is a slap at the face of God. God has called us to live for a purpose. He has given us the Torah, which tells us how to live out that purpose. Let's do that with a strong theological understanding. So we might be an encouragement to our fellow Jews, but also an encouragement to all the nations of the earth. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and the challenge of it. We thank you, God, for the fact that you are a God who has given good instruction. Help us, God, to live out that instruction with intentionality and with passion. God, we thank you for the fact that by faith alone we can be in relationship with you. We thank you for our Messiah, Yeshua, who was willing to die and allow his blood to be shed and to suffer so terribly just so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could stand as your children. God, we thank you for that amazing truth. Help us, God, to live our lives consistent with that faith, living out our radical faith in Messiah, as Jewish followers of Messiah Yeshua, for for your glory and for the benefit of the nations. And I pray all this in Yeshua's name.